Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? One where you had such spiritual victory that you felt nothing could ever shake your faith. I remember when I was a landscaper, I would listen to podcasts and sermons while I worked since it was, you know, a fairly mindless job. I just mowed lawns all day and and so I, I availed myself of the time. I would listen to encouraging things. And I remember from time to time listening to some preacher encourage some aspect of the Christian life. And I would just be fired up, you know, hearing the Word of God. And maybe they were encouraging me to be a better father or a better husband. And I would, I would be resolved that when I get home, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply all the things that he exhorted me to in the text. And, and then I, I walk through the doors and... I'm greeted by a loving wife who's exhausted because of eight little children who have sucked the life out of her. And the children need a firm and loving fatherly hand. And, and, I, and I, so I go immediately to work. I'm going to put everything into practice. And you know what happens, right? You know because you encounter the reality versus what you thought you would be like. And then you find that after just a few hours, your strength is zapped and you're unable to put into practice the very things that you had resolved moments before that you would. I found that in theory, my faith was strengthened, but when tested, it proved unstable, often leading to doubt. You may recall the story of Jesus' disciples making their way across the Sea of Galilee in a storm without Jesus in in Matthew chapter 14. When all of a sudden Jesus comes walking to them across the waves. Startled, they think they see a ghost and they cry out, but Jesus calms them with a word. And then Peter, that bold and daring Peter, eager and zealous, full of faith, gets out of the boat and begins to walk across the water towards Jesus. But you know the story. The reality of what he's just done begins to sink in. Instead of seeing Jesus, Peter notices the stormy waves all around him. Fear begins to grab a hold of him. As his faith melts away and he begins to sink. Jesus reaches out and catches him with these words, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? We're like Peter. Jesus could have just as well been speaking of David. We have journeyed with David through the wilderness of Judah as he's learned over and over and over again to trust God to deliver him from Saul. His faith has been strengthened as God has vindicated him, not once but twice from Saul. And that he has also kept him from blood guilt by avenging him against Nabal. But now in the shortest chapter in 1 Samuel, a chapter where God is not even mentioned, the name of God is not mentioned, David gives in to his fears and succumbs to doubt. Some want their heroes with no flaws, no blemishes, but David proves to be a hero like us with feet of clay. 
He pointed then to a greater Messiah, a Messiah who would have feet like burnished bronze, as he's described by the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1. But we are very much like David. We often lose faith after has proven his worthiness over and over and over again. And as we see David unravel in chapter 27, we watch the trajectory of doubt go from bad to worse, ending in a cliffhanger of a great dilemma, one that does not get resolved until chapter 29. But as we watch our hero with feet of clay, we learn to take our eyes off of our situation and remember God's proven trustworthiness. That is the antidote when faith gives way to doubt. So let us read together this story from 1 Samuel chapter 27, and we will end at chapter 28, verse 2. Let's read together. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerizites and the Amalekites. And from there, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, and the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of Jeharmelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we do give you thanks for this portion of your word. We ask that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. May they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our closest kinsman redeemer. Amen. Sometimes 
that voice in your head is not always objective. It doesn't always reason rightly. David said in his heart, one day Saul will be successful and kill me. Why does David think that? That hasn't been true in the past. Over and over again, God has preserved David from Saul. No. David does not have any evidence that God will not protect him just as he has done in the past. God has proven faithful to uphold David in some of the most trying situations. So why does David, given all that God has done for him, think this way? But what the author of 1 Samuel is trying to show us is that David is not thinking about God at all. God is absent from this narrative. David is thinking in his own heart. Now, if you remember back at chapter 21, David had tried unsuccessfully to go over to the king Achish. In that time, the defeat of Goliath was fresh. And the song that provoked Saul to envy cautioned the people in Gath. David, Saul has killed his thousands. David, his ten thousands. They were chanting that even in Philistia. And it caused them to be nervous about why David is coming to them. So David changed his behavior and he acted like a madman just to get out of there with his life. But somehow during that time, something must have happened that changed David's mind so that he feels like now it would be different. The sparse telling of the story does not indicate that. But David thinks as many have after him that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And reasons that he will be safer with Akesh and Philistia. As verse 4 curtly summarizes, this seemed to work. Saul stopped pursuing David. So David, his two wives and his 600 men and all of their families, probably over a thousand people, settled in the capital with Akesh. But they soon find that it's constraining. Probably because of the scrutiny of living right near the king, So at some point during the 16 months David is living among the Philistines, he asks Achish for a country city to live in. And Achish gives David Ziklag, a border city near Judah. And it was a strategic city because it's right on the border. And it was probably not habited by any Philistines. It had been captured and it was in their possession, but it was not being settled by their people because of fear that it's so close to the territory of Judah. And Achish must have thought that David and his army could provide some sort of advanced protection. And it was also far enough away from Gath to provide David a level of uh, 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 secrecy, not being under the watchful eye of King Akesh. Now you might be thinking, what's, what's wrong with David's behavior? Why, why does this mean that David is losing faith? And to be fair, some don't think that David is losing faith. They don't think that David is in error here. And I would put those in the category who like their heroes with no blemishes. They don't want their heroes to have feet of clay. And so they they try the best they can to scrub the text of any deficiencies in David. David is a man after God's own heart, to be sure. 
the reason I believe that they are wrong and why I think David is wrong comes from the previous chapter. You see, he said in his confrontation with Saul when he's vindicating himself, he says this to Saul in chapter 26. In verse 19, he says, Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred up you against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. Now listen to this. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. David is quick to point out to Saul that the men who have incited Saul against him to pursue David would like to see him exiled in a foreign country, having no share in Israel, in the worship of Yahweh, Israel's God, encouraging him to go and serve other gods. But by faith, David stands his ground. He maintains his innocence, and he calls Saul to stop pursuing him. How is it then that he voluntarily does what he was so previously adamant against? I would contend it's because David is looking too close at his situation and not close enough to God. David sees the wind and the waves, but not Jesus. And so begins to look about for safety elsewhere. David is not alone here. We do the same things when we try to supplement our faith with other helpful things, useful things. When we flee to our enemies for salvation, despite knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord. We let doubt overcome our faith. And doubt is a corrosive that slowly eats away at our faith. Doubt was Satan's tactic to entice Eve to eat the fruit. He introduced little lie about the goodness of God that corroded Eve's faith, leading her to doubt and ultimately to disobey God. You see, Eve, what's really going on here? Don't you see? God is stingy. He doesn't want you to be like him. That's why he's holding this fruit from you. That's why he's not letting you come and and take it because he knows if you eat it, you're going to be just like him. And by the way, you're not going to really die. And Eve looked, then, then she began to look at the fruit and she saw it in a different light. You're right. This is going to make me wise. This is good. You're right. God is stingy. God isn't good. He doesn't care about me. He's kept this from me. So she takes, and some variation of that lie has led to countless men and women to doubt God. No doubt Satan whispered something in David's ear too. Listen, God can't protect you from Saul. Eventually, he will catch you and kill you. Besides, if you were the Lord's anointed, why is he treating you this way? Why are you out in the wilderness and not in some palace? God does not care about you, David. He will not protect you. You've got to take matters into your own hands. Slowly, faith gives way to sight as the eyes of our heart no longer remember that God is trustworthy since they're now flooded with anxiety of our 
current situation, what's right in front of us. Forgetting God, we cast about for functional saviors that will offer us safety and rest from our anxiety and fears. And the hardest part in all this is that our our functional savers often do provide a measure of relief. We do feel safe. Jerry Bridges defines a, a functional savior in this way. He says, quote, Sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, security, and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. They preoccupy our minds and consume our time and resources. They make us feel good and somehow even make us feel righteous. Whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship them, end quote. A helpful tip to discover what your functional saviors are or the idols of your heart are is to examine your news feed. Facebook and other social media algorithms are pretty good at surfacing our deepest longings and desires. Now, they just may be something that you, but nevertheless, they're a good barometer of what we love what are we paying attention to? Where are our, what is our fundamental orientation towards? Facebook will tell you, and they'll sell it to you, especially if they can make money off of it. What is Facebook always bringing to your attention? Chances are that might be where your heart is. I don't usually do this, but printed in the bulletin in the back under the sermon discussion questions is a list of diagnostic questions to take into your closet when you're praying and asking God to surface these functional saviors so that you can tear them down. Ask these questions of yourself. Go through them. What are the ways? Where are the areas? Who are the people? Where is your love orientated? And then that way you can examine your hearts and begin to dethrone these functional saviors. But... Self-examination is good, and identifying our functional saviors is important, but that is not enough to do battle against the underlying doubt that causes us to flee to them for salvation. For that, we must arm ourselves with the gospel. And it, and it can't just come from me on Sunday morning. You need to be preaching to yourselves throughout the week. As you inhabit the word through your daily reading, you will encounter ample reminders of God's promises. It never ceases to amaze me how the mercies of God are new every morning. And that God seems to always be for me the words that I need to strengthen my faith. But of course, that means that you have to be opening yourself up to God to speak to you. You can't be running off to God's enemies to finding salvation there i think the narrator's silence on god in this passage reminds us that david was not listening to god david is listening to his own heart he listens to his heart but we all know how well that can go despite what disney would have you believe take up and read praying all the while that god would drive away doubt and deepen your faith start here 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, if David would have armed himself with that, would he have gone and sought salvation among the Philistines? Armed with the gospel, doubt doesn't stand a chance. But if you don't take up the shield of faith, then of course you will be susceptible to functional saviors. You will be susceptible, as David was, to seeking safety apart from God. But because God has proven himself trustworthy over and over again in the sending of his son in the resurrection of his son in your justification and eventually your glorification he has proven himself trustworthy we must not lose faith but one sin seeking salvation in our enemies looking for functional saviors. One sin often compounds. The sin of our first parents caused them so much shame that they hid from God and they tried in vain to cover their shame. For David, fleeing from safety among the Philistines meant that he must set aside certain things to get along with his enemies. These are people that David, just years before, was defeating in battle killed their greatest hero, Goliath, and sent them running. Now he has to try to live with them. He has to set aside all those feelings. He has to conceal his true motives for many of his actions. Notice in verse 8 that the narrator tells us David wasn't just waiting around, but would go up and make raids. We should... We shouldn't expect that Achish, just out of the kindness of his heart, is giving land and sustenance to David and his little army, a group that is well over a thousand. Surely David has struck up some kind of deal with Achish that he would pay him tribute or taxes. So he must go and raid. And so he does. But David is he's caught in a conundrum. He's still loyal to Israel. But he's now living among the Philistines. And he has to pay tribute to the Philistines. He's got to make his way. What's he going to do? He doesn't want Achish to know. So he covers his true motives. He makes raids to Israel's enemies down towards the south. And he kills every man, woman, and child, leaving no witnesses to the story. And then when he returns to Achish with all the plunder, he lies And he says that he was plundering this or that place in Judah or Israel. Again, some read this positively and see David fulfilling what Saul should be doing by devoting to the destruction, the enemies of God. But I don't think that is what this story is here for. David may have felt he was carrying out the Lord's work. But if you look closely, he more resembles Saul in this story. For one, the nations that were to be devoted to destruction were to be utterly wiped out. 
Not just the people, but also all that belong to them. Their animals and their houses and all their possessions. Saul was condemned because he kept the best of the livestock for himself or to sacrifice to the Lord. In reality, David is forced to use acceptance to cover up his raiding price so that he can continue to live among the enemies of God. Sin gets compounded when we give way to functional saviors, for soon we find ourselves lying to cover it up, both to keep the status quo and to try to ease our own consciences which condemn us. If your functional savior is security, then you will be tempted to do things in business that make you money that is not, strictly speaking, legal. You cover it up because your ultimate goal is security. So cooking the books or or dipping in and skimming off the top is just par for the course. Maybe your functional savior is comfort and relaxation. So you're tempted to take that extra hour at lunch on the clock. No one will know. Or maybe you know you could complete the job faster, but you take your time so that the boss doesn't give you more work to do. Your functional saviors will always require you to conceal your true motives from others, whatever they may be, whatever the cost. Doubt leads to loss of faith or a transfer of faith to our functional saviors. But doubt also makes it easier for us to diminish sin and redefine it according to our own standard, one that we can keep. David is not living trying to please the Lord. David has a new Lord. He is trying to please Achish, which leads David to do things that he could subtly convince himself are okay, but really they're done with the motive of pleasing Achish. And it works. Achish trusts David, thinking that he has made himself an enemy of all Israel so that he will serve him. Verse 12. Achish is devilish in that way, as Satan loves to trap us in sins that we have subtly redefined as being righteous. This is Paul's argument in Romans 7. Paul didn't even know what coveting was until he heard the law. But then upon hearing it, that's all he could think about. But the law wasn't sinful. The law is good, but it was our flesh that seized the opportunity aroused by the law and leads to sin. Satan has imprisoned many well-intentioned people with legalism. He has subtly got them to redefine the gospel to be this or that issue or doctrine. Take the Pharisees, for example. They had convinced themselves of their righteousness because outwardly they kept the law or parts of the law that they redefined as being very important. The parts that made them distinct as Jews. Take, for instance, the Sabbath. Some of the reasons that they fiercely opposed Jesus over the Sabbath seem crazy to us. Mark says they watched Jesus closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath. It's one of the few times that Jesus expresses anger. As he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of hearts. And then he heals the man. And they immediately plot how they're going to destroy him. 
they had totally missed the purpose of the Sabbath to the point they wanted to murder Jesus because in an act of kindness, he heals a man. That's crazy. That's crazy. Their doctrine has made them crazy. Now they look for a way to catch Jesus if he's going to do something good, if he's going to heal somebody. And they use that to plot against him. But that is exactly what Satan does when he convinces you that your pet sin is really doing God's will. The thing with functional saviors is they have their own scheme of salvation. And and usually it's always works-based. Their own system of atonement. The stark example of a drug addict will we'll shed some light on this. The drug addict usually uses a substance to avoid the pain of reality. The drug addict, the functional savior drugs, offers them a pain-free, numb existence. But they must give things in return. First, their body, which will be destroyed in the process. But also, it takes resources to maintain their drug habit, which, by the way, has diminishing returns the more you use it meaning you need more and more to keep up that pain-free, numb existence. To get it, you have to do things that you wouldn't normally do. You have to steal or rob or sell yourself for Our whole Not too many people here addicted to such an extent, but take that analogy for your own functional savior. They all work on that principle. Porn works the same way. So do romance novels and the pursuit of money. Somebody asked Rockefeller, how much money is enough? Just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. But if you, have to, if you are to examine all of your functional saviors, they all offer life, but at a cost. And the life they offer turns out to be a ghostly substitute for real life. What motivates it all is usually something God, good. It's usually a desire for God, but it's a desire for God on our own terms. But all that we end up getting from our manufactured gods, our functional saviors, is really just slavery. Slavery to our own desires and appetites, which are unrestrained by God. But Jesus, the Savior of the world, is not like functional saviors. He offers freedom from the bondage of sin. Not by calling you to work harder or to do more, but to come and rest. You see, the trustworthy God of David proves just how trustworthy he really is when he offered up his own son to death on your behalf. Do you believe that? You stood here condemned to die, guilty. And God said, I'm going to take you out of there. I'm going to put you over here. And you're going to be righteous. And instead, in your place, I'm going to put my son, who is perfect in every way, innocent. And he's going to suffer on your behalf. You don't have to work harder to earn my love. I already love you. I gave my son for you. And he did it. But it gets even worse. We, who he set free, we're the same ones who turned and mocked and spit on him and yelled, Crucify him! Crucify him! That's me! 
That's me in the crowd. The one he had died for. Mocking and yelling at him. When I turn in doubt and unbelief. That's what I'm doing. We don't think of it that way. We don't think of it that way because we love God. We love Jesus. But this is exactly what the author of Hebrews warned. He said in verse 26 of chapter 10, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Does the author of Hebrews say that because there is no hope for those who have sullied themselves with their sin, running after functional saviors? No, he says it to warn you so that you wake up and you realize what your sin is doing. Nobody, no good Christian in the right mind would ever go to Calvary at Jesus' cross and trample on His blood. But that's what you're doing when you give in to your functional Savior. When you choose doubt over faith in the trustworthy promises of God. That's what you're doing when you trifle with sin in the dark. When you look at that website that you know you shouldn't. When you treat your spouse that way with contempt when you don't love your neighbor. None of you would go and trample on Jesus' blood in that way. So we need the stark reminder. It's in effect the very thing that we're doing when we look for salvation anywhere but in Christ. David's motives were probably good, but he has to conceal those because in reality, he's serving the Lord. He has convinced himself he's serving the Lord but his actions are not consistent with faith, but with doubt. And doubt leads him to take refuge among his enemies. And doubt leads him to cover his true motives, both from others, but also from himself. But doubt, you see, doubt also leads to a great dilemma. A dilemma that will test the very fabric of David's faith in God. A dilemma that David will not be able to get himself out of through deceit and lies but we'll have to rely solely on God to act. Notice in chapter 1 of verse 28, or chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. For the past 16 months, David has been able to hide his devotion to Israel and Israel's God by deceiving Achish. But now what will he do? Now he is being called to actual battle against Israel. And he's going to go with the armies of the Philistines. There'll be no hiding his motives. Unless, of course, his motives have changed. There is ambiguity in David's answer that ends this story on a cliffhanger. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. 
Has David changed his mind? Will he go out and fight with the Philistines against Israel? The starkness of that image is meant to jar you to the absurdity of the situation. And this illustrates well the absurdity of our, all of our functional saviors. Would you really side with them against God? Would you literally trample Jesus' blood in mockery? No, of course not. If you could see them for what they are, if you could see sin for what it is, then you would never. We get caught in this same dilemma when we are brought head to head and our true loyalty is under examination. Will you serve God or the God that you have made for yourself? You can't serve both. But the But on closer examination, you will realize that there really is only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Others offer salvation, but they can never provide it. This story of David shows us that David has feet of clay. And like you and I, he's susceptible to doubt and is prone to wander, losing faith. In his story, we see our own journey of faith as we cry with the Father in Mark's gospel. I believe Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. This story also gives us a longing for a Messiah whose faith never wavers. A Messiah whose willing exile was not an escape from death looking for safety, but an exile in death to bring safety to the rest of us. This Jesus, the object of our faith, has proven his trustworthiness by dying on your behalf. And he calls you to who, you who are weary and heavy laden, pressed down by the weight of sin and desperate to come, he bids you to come to him for rest, to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. For he is your salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are prone to wander. Doubts and unbelief come naturally to us. Faith is hard won. Even on the tales of spiritual victories, we find doubts seeping in, undermining our faith and distracting us from the truth, enticing and tempting us with functional saviors, things that can never offer salvation, but yet we we give ourselves willingly to them. Father, free us from the bondage of sin and make us slaves to righteousness. Help us to set our minds on the things that are above and not the things that are here on the earth. Work faith deep in us so that we trust you because you are trustworthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And how fitting it is that we